0: Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging.
1: VER is proud to have provided the camera and lens packages for Get Out. VER supports television and film productions of all sizes all over the world. Their camera prep facilities in Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Atlanta, New Orleans, and Miami are stocked with the largest inventory of camera and lens equipment. VER offers expert engineering support, and they provide the best service you'll find anywhere 24-7. Learn more at ver.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hempel, filmmaker and contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. My guest today is Toby Oliver, ACS, whose work on the horror comedy Get Out is garnering widespread and much deserved acclaim. The movie, written and directed by Jordan Peele, is a sort of horror reimagining of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner by way of the Stepford Wives. It tells the story of a young black man, Chris, who accompanies his white girlfriend on a visit to her family home and quickly realizes that something is very, very wrong in this town where several black people have gone missing and the ones that remain behave extremely strangely. The movie combines menace and comedy in a unique and provocative way, commenting on race and class via genre in a manner that recalls the best work of John Carpenter and George Romero. With his elegant and ominous use of the scope frame, Oliver finds a visual language that perfectly conveys the mounting horror Get Out's vulnerable protagonist experiences, and I'm delighted to have him here to talk about his process. Well, I guess we should just start at the beginning. How did Get Out first come to you, and what was your initial response to the material?
0: Well, I had uh, Get Out was produced by Blumhouse Productions, which are known for producing a lot of quite fairly low-budget horror flicks and thrillers, and then some of which go on to be quite successful. And Blumhouse had been very good at that. I'd already done a movie for them about two years earlier. It was actually about when I first uh, moved over to the United States from uh, Sydney, Australia. Uh, where I've where most of my career has sort of played out back home in Australia, um, and soon after I got here, I got the opportunity to work on a Blumhouse movie. So when Get Out came along, um, I'd worked uh, worked for them a few times by then. I did some reshoots as well. Um, they put me forward to meet Jordan. Um, so Jordan had been shopping his script around for a while, actually, and Blumhouse I think was wasn't the first place he'd gone to to see if he could get the film. Um, the film up and uh at the time uh he was looking for a dp he didn't have his first time director he didn't have a relationship with a dp um and blumhouse put me forward to meet jordan and uh we, we sort of hit it off on that first conversation firstly they sent me the script of course um and it was fantastic it was like unlike i'd read a few blumhouse movie scripts by then and a lot of the horror genre scripts um which in, in horror, I guess, for me, was kind of a new thing. I'd, I'd only um, been working in that w- was sort of within that genre for a few years. Most of my career, I'd been doing drama and comedies and various other genres. but um, I'd been starting to get used to the the idea of working in horror, um, but but Jordan script wasn't that kind of straight up horror. it was it had a lot of other layers going on, and that was really. Really interesting and really drew me into the project, so I was really keen to meet Jordan. And when we did,
1: we hit it off. And what were your initial conversations like? Did you talk about uh, other films that might influence or inform your approach or overall tone, or what? What were the basically with that first meeting with Jordan? What did the two of you talk about?
0: I think well, Jordan has had his. The reference movies, the touchstone movies that you mentioned in the intro, like the Stepford Wives, and also rosemary's Baby had been movies that he'd had it bouncing around in his head as a as a touchstone starting place to think about get out um, so we talked a bit about that um i'd seen those movies, of course, in the past and and we started talking about really it was in terms of us getting on the same page, my pitch to him was that I thought the movies should have a Really, quite a naturalistic feel. Not too crazy with the the sort of horror conventions in terms of the way it looks. Uh, maybe not until the very end of the movie that we sort of go towards that territory a little bit more with the more sort of stylized lighting and camera angles. But initially, we we sort of set it up as a, it's quite a quite a naturalistic, comfortable sort of a almost a uh, the beginning of the movie is almost shot like a drama. Right. And so, and he was writing to that. I mean, that's kind of where he was coming from too. And so, we set up a world for for the main character, for Chris, that's totally grounded in a in a sense of reality, a real world. So you don't, you're not getting any cues visually too early on that something weird's going on. The weirdness comes out of what he starts noticing. So I guess it's putting the audience in his shoes as well. So we talked about those kind of things, and we we were on the sort of same page straight away. And I think that's. If you can find that with a director really early on, it's great because then you can just keep going from there and uh, keep adding layers on top of that.
1: Do you start thinking about those things on your first reading of a script? I mean, when a script comes to you, do you initially just read it just for the story as an audience member, or do you start thinking about possible visual approaches right away? How, what's your process
0: like in terms of thinking about how you're going to The very first thing you want to kind of do is, is this good, the script? You know does it appeal to me as a story or as, as a journey as a, is the main character somebody that's appealing, whichever, even it could be a dark story. It could be a light story, comedy, whatever genre it's trying to do. Does it you know, does it work on that basic level? Um, cause that's the first decision you've kind of got to make. If you're going to take on a project, you know, it does, is this project something I'm going to be proud of? Because obviously, Movies can change from the script stage to the actually getting made, but the, the bones of it, um, in the sense that, is it kind of going to be any good, is pretty much there in the, the first reading of the script. So I, I'm, I read it once with that in mind, and then if ideas sort of come to me about the look and the feel, you know, when I sit down and read a script, sort of images start floating into your head as you're, as you're reading it. and. Um, as uh, as you read through the whole thing you might develop those ideas a bit more as you reread it. So yeah I mean I, it's nice to be able to go with a kind of a gut feeling I think with a pitch so when you first read it your sort of initial impression of perhaps where you could take it visually I think it's a good thing to go, th- go for and then try and develop that in your mind a little bit.
1: Well uh, as I mentioned in the intro one of the things that really struck me about the movie was your use of the widescreen 2.40 aspect ratio. Mm. It reminded me a lot of some of John Carpenter's work, especially Mm. Halloween. Um, As in that film, you really use every corner of the frame to generate tension. And I was wondering if you'd talk about how and why you chose that particular aspect ratio and how you used it to create the palpable sense of dread that the film has.
0: Yeah, I think I love working in that aspect ratio 2.40, 2.35, whatever you want to call it. Um, And I think these days, it's become a little bit of a defining ratio that defines the fact that you're sitting there watching a movie as opposed to watching TV. So TV now, as we know, is 16 by nine, which is pretty close to 185. So what used to be a pretty common standard in movies, 185 185 is now really similar to TV. What we, we know as TV, so I kind of I find myself always leaning towards wanting to shoot two four and it's not it's more because we're making cinema we're making a movie here and we're uh, quite apart from the fact that it 's a wonderful frame to try and fill up as you say with all those those elements I mean what I love to do generally as a DP is always have story. Elements, if you can, in the foreground, and midground, and background. So you've got a you, when you're looking through the frame, there's depth that's telling you something more about the characters or the stories as you look through it. And I think the wide screen frame even that sort of allows you to do that a little bit more. Um, so I always just gravitate towards it, even if it's a low budget interior type movie, um, a horror, or a big you know the obvious example if you're doing some big epic sort of location-based movie, then it's a sort of a no-brainer. But I I kind of think that, you know, given the choice, i just always. But, you know, it's not a hard and fast rule. There was a movie, uh, I think it was a Polish movie that came out a a couple of years ago called Ida, which was a black and white movie, and that was shot in four by three. And it was beautiful and it was amazing and it was perfect the way that they did it. And of course, Kubrick is well known for shooting four x three most a lot of his films. So it's not like going the other way isn't viable. It is. But I just I guess I, I lean if, if if we're making that decision in in prep, okay, what's our aspect ratio of this movie? More often than not, I'm going to be saying two four zero these days. Just to separate it from TV, if nothing else.
1: Well, the the movie really kind of announces itself at the opening, and I love the opening scene, which, to my eye, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it it seemed to be all covered in one unbroken take. It was. Uh, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, maybe describe the action of that scene, just to refresh people who uh, have seen the movie and, and... yeah. these people who haven't seen it, uh, maybe describe the action of that scene and explain why you cho- chose to shoot it that way. Well,
0: it's interesting. I I will I'll, I'll tell you what the action is. It's it, it it we open the movie opens on a man walking in a quite a nice looking suburban street at night, a black man, and he's wandering around. He's obviously looking for an address, he's trying to find a particular street and he can't find it, and he's very much alone. There's no one else, no other traffic around, there's no other else around. He's looking a little bit nervous being in this sort of, un, sort of, he's not used to being in this neighborhood. Anyway, he's looking for this, uh, trying to remember this address and a car, a white sports car sort of cruises up in the background and does a U-turn and then kind of slowly uh, cruises along the curb behind him. And he thinks, oh man, what, what is this? Who is this guy? There's no one else around here. So he start, turns and starts walking the other way um, and says, I'm getting out of here. And uh, he has not get very far before he looks back and he sees the car's empty, the door's open, and someone's gone missing. And then uh, a figure jumps out from behind him, which is quite a, quite a shock, and drags him away and puts him in the trunk of the car after, I think, uses something to knock him out. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what's interesting is that, <clears throat> and this is filmmaker, filmmaking is not always an exact linear process, that um, opening scene was, in fact, a reshoot. So when, uh, in the main principal photography, we shot a very similar scene, set in exactly the same location, same action happens, um, the same sort of main action happens in the guy walking the street at night, he gets abducted and put into the trunk of a car. Um, so, but there was a whole, other, quite I I won't say what all the other stuff was, there's quite a few other characters and a few other things going on as well. Um, and when uh, Jordan got to the edit, he realised that it wasn't really working, it was a bit too complicated as an opening to the movie and it wasn't all in one shot either. So when he did get the opportunity to do a reshoot, he requested to reshoot the opening scene and also not only simplified the action down to the, to the real, the bare bones of what he needed to talk tell, uh, he also did it in one shot, steady cam shot. Um, so that was how that ended up. But it, see, the, so the movie the movie sort of keeps developing even after we shoot uh-huh. in Prince of Photography. There's always, um, because Jordan was talking about he had some different endings in mind too. And I know he's done a couple of, he's mentioned that in a couple of his interviews. And so the ending that we have in the movie now wasn't the first ending either. So the beginning and the end both got changed.
1: Um, well, something interesting about that opening shot also is it sort of sets the tone for the whole movie, which is really interesting because there have been a lot of horror comedies, but usually in horror comedies, like a movie like Scream, for example, it sort of alternates the scary moments and the funny moments. Get Out is interesting because it's actually scary and funny at the same time. Yeah, the time, which and, right? it,
0: and it bounces between those two things amazingly well, which it did in the script, um, but really Jordan's... Sort of innate skill as a director. Now he's a first-time director, so it's not like he walked into this movie with heaps of experience of how to do this kind of thing. But he had just had a just a really deft touch with the tone of being able to come from pretty scary moments and really weird stuff, and then to uproariously funny scenes, um, and to cut back and forth without it feeling clunky or or. Um, Sort of weird. So he 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 was able. He just had a really, from the beginning, he had a really clear idea, uh, especially as a first-time director of where where he wanted to end up and the tone that he wanted to have for, for the whole movie, uh, including all those shifts in gear, um, that that really make the movie what it is in many ways. Well, I was curious about that because it, it is,
1: I think, a very delicate balance. And was that something that just seemed to be. Intuitive to him and you, you know, figuring that out, or was it difficult to strike that tonal balance? Did it take any kind of figuring out, uh, or was it there right he from the start? Was,
0: he was. was I game? think he he had that pretty clear from the start how he wanted to, how he wanted to, and, and I guess when we're there on the day and we've got the actors and the performances happening, and the scenes with Lil Rel Howley, the the T S A agent Buddy, are so funny, probably funnier than we all thought that it was going to be, including Jordan. Um, but he cast the guy, obviously, you know, knowing how um, how funny he was going to be. Uh, that stuff, I guess, really, I think a lot of the fine tuning of that probably happened in the edit. Jordan had a really good editor, Greg Plotkin, and I think that's where they fine tune the balance between those things. When we shot them, we didn't specifically shoot the funny scenes in a particular different way to the the, the you know the thriller scenes or the. The horror has its own kind of feel when the blood starts flowing um, and things are amped up a bit, but that's right towards the end of the movie. So, uh, so it's a really consistent approach throughout the whole film and it's letting those scenes sort of take on their, their own life.
1: Well, aside from whatever aesthetic challenges the movie might have had, I know these Bloomhouse productions, as you mentioned earlier, they don't have the most leisurely schedules. Or generous <laughs> they certainly <budgets>. don't. <laughs> um, oh no! How, how long did you have to shoot the film? Uh,
0: well, principal photography was twenty-three days, um, and this is to the movie was at least like hundred and ten minutes long, so it's a decent-sized movie. Um, plus, there was a couple of extra days of reshooting.
1: Well, the movie never seems to be straining against its resources. So I'm curious, how do you get around the limited time frame and make the most of what you have?
0: Um, I rely on, personally, I mean, there's two, there's two sides to it. There's, you know, working out how we're going to cover the movie, what shots, uh, and then how I'm going to light the movie because, of course, lighting takes time. Um, and really a lot of specific planning is in advance is kind of the key to being able to do it, I find. Um, Jordan, in terms of shooting, Jordan had prepared quite a few storyboards of some of the key sequences. Some of that was already done even when I joined the project, so that was a good reference to start with. Um, And then we developed those a bit more and he did a few more storyboards, but by no means was the whole movie storyboarded. Um, But then another thing that we did in prep, which was about a week out from shooting, when we had the, the location of the house, the main Armitage house, um as we did we walked through every single scene in the armitage house and I shot a photo stills um of every camera angle for every scene referring to the storyboards and also just working out with Jordan where the you know good places for the camera would be within the location um I wouldn't have done that with every director and every movie I've done far from it but for Jordan it was a really good exercise and it's not like on set later on that we're referring to those photos religiously <laughs> copying right. what we did. But by just going through the process, the the way that you can approach shooting each scene kind of sinks into your head, in, into my head, into Jordan's head, into the AD's head. So we kind of know what we're dealing with when we walk into a scene. Um, and then I would convert that into written down shot lists for every day. So we'd be able to sort of really tick them off as we go through. And you kind of have to be that specific to make sure you can get through all the scenes you've got to do and all the shots you've got to do in a t- twelve-hour day. It's uh, we didn't have much overtime either because again, there's not much budget for it. Right. So you've just got to you've just got to get it done. Um, I guess for me, it's uh, coming from Australia where we're where low budgets are the norm. Um, we have to work with ten-hour days um, as the norm, um, and we've got to shoot just as much material. So it's kind of good training, I guess. My my years working back there had been good training for, certainly for doing this kind of movie. So I was able to slot right in. Um, and we, you know, we didn't go over and we didn't have to you know, pick up days and scenes and things like that. Um, other than when creatively it became possible to do that and it actually improved the movie. So um, really it's about planning. I mean, and with lighting, the same thing. I usually, um, I'm sure many DPs do, You know, draw up a lighting plan the weeks ahead or maybe the night before of what you're going to approach during the day. I guess the difference is when you've got a tight schedule like we had on get out, whatever your plan that you set up, certainly the big parts of it, you've kind of got to stick to it. You can't sort of say, oh, it's kind of not working. Let's change it because you just simply don't have time. So it's just a bit about experience helps there where you know that, well, if I set this up, this is definitely going to work and I can just tweak it because you've, whatever you set up is kind of what you're going to be working with for the day. You haven't got time to, to redo it over and over until you get it you know, looking where you hoped it was going to look. So, you know, there's there's obviously experience comes into it there. Um, but it's it's really the pre-planning that lets you work fast, really.
1: Well, on the one hand, you know, we all would love to have more time and more money when we're making films and all yeah. that. But is there also... On the other hand, do you find that there is a benefit sometimes to the fast schedules and lower budgets in terms of thinking on your feet and trusting your intuition and, and things like
0: that? Uh, to, a, to a degree, yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of it. So for me, it would be, it'd be nice to um, have, a bit, have a bit more of those instances, which I've had on a, you know a couple of the bigger movies, where you do have a bit more time to actually think things through and maybe add the extra bit of icing and the cherry on the cake, you know what I mean, for for making a scene look good or really sing. And and that's, that's great too. I guess having to fly a bit by the seat of your pants and um, um, shoot very fast certainly makes you resourceful and you're often hopefully creative and, and you know, often creative ideas and solutions that come out that um, can be terrific come out of that, sort of method of thinking where you where you spend quite a lot of your time thinking how to get it all done in the in the day. But on the other but that can germinate <laughs> ideas that actually creatively can be really interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a bit it's a bit of both. I mean I I, I wouldn't want to say that I'd prefer doing super low budget movies yeah. because it's really hard work, you know, and sometimes it's just impossible to really achieve what the director wants because there's just simply not enough money. Um, so there, there is a tipping point, I think, yeah. where the budget's still quite low, but there's just enough, if you've got the right people, for the director to really realise their vision. I think we had that on Get Out. I mean, of course we would have liked a few extra days sure. and, and a bit of extra money and a bit of extra equipment, but there was enough to, for Jordan to realise a version of what he wanted to do that was going to work. So it's it's <laughs> sometimes you you can be close and not close enough, and sometimes you can just get there. You know.
1: Well, something else I really liked about the film was your use of color, and I was wondering if you could talk mm. a little bit about that because I think you use the palette really nicely to convey this kind of. Initially, this sense of security and then mm. as the movie progresses, it gets mm. more uneasy. exactly and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about. Well that, that. was,
0: yeah, well, initially it, uh, well, we, we had the idea we wanted to feel pretty natural, naturalistic. And so we had the sense that it, it, at um, Chris's apartment in the city at the very early scenes, it's kind of got a cool, sort of a bit New York kind of loft kind of feel. Um, so that was the city. But then when they drive up to the countryside to get to the Armitage Estate, the idea was to warm it up a bit. And I did that with LUTs in camera, So the dailies and the onset monitoring sort of had these color shifts sort of built in. Um, and so they give you that exactly that false sense of security. So you get there and they're very welcoming. They're very happy to see Chris. The, the sun's warm the 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 you know the estate is sort of in golden tones and and that was something we deliberately pushed and that went through to the party scene where all the other guests are sort of milling around and stuff and we kept that going until um, as a as a theme inside the Armitage estate with a different twist on it for the night scenes which were a bit more spooky uh, where we went for a I went for a cooler tone a more cyan kind of tone it had some some particular lead gels on the Lights sort or of the sort of lend it towards that, not quite straight up blue versus warm, but just adding a few other colours in there. I played around of colour a little bit um, inside the home, but still trying to keep it relatively grounded in, in a sense of reality. But yeah, definitely there was that progression mm-hmm. where we'd we'd, we'd go, through, he'd arrive there in the warmth, and then as it went on, things started getting a little bit more kooky.
1: Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the the technical side. What kind of camera did you use and why was it chosen?
0: Um, well, I've been working on a, the last few years, sort of, I guess, mostly since it became widely available with the Ari Alexa, as many people have, many DPs um, like using the Alexa. Um, but on this one, this was the first um, show where both the A and B camera were Alexa Mini that I did. So, um... Since the Alexa Mini came out, I found that that works really suits my style of shooting as a as a main unit, a a or b camera. Um, and um, since I've, I think I used it once on a one movie before I did Get Out, a smaller movie in New York, and that's when I had uh, one Alexa Mini and one Amira. and that was a bit of a bit of a mix up. But on on Get Out, we had the two Minis, um, and uh, I haven't looked back actually. I've shot two movies since Get Out last year and used two minis again two alexa minis on both those shows as well um, i just find that the smaller size lighter weight means it's just faster to use and a little bit easier to get from setup to setup you don't have to break the camera down to change from steady cam to handheld to studio mode you can pretty much leave all the bits and pieces that the assistant's loaded up with it ends up much bigger of course than it's not actually that mini by the time they are finished with it but even so it's still about half the weight of uh of the regular full-size alexa and it gives you exactly the same quality um a few little conveniences aren't there because it's a smaller body um but i'm very happy to trade those for the for the convenience of the actual camera being smaller and lighter um so that's been a that's been really good i've really enjoyed using those and they better for handheld and if i'm doing some of the handheld it's a lot better for my back i can tell you now
1: <laughs> and uh what kinds of uh, lenses did you use and, and well uh, it was
0: interesting because uh, in prep um jordan was a first time director as we said and so he hadn't really had to decide what uh, anything about lenses like what what lens to use on a particular shot or what's wide what's tight i mean he didn't understand that a that are 18 mils or wide or that 100 mils are tight. I mean, he hadn't ever had to really learn any of that stuff in his career so far. And so I sort of took him into a rental house and sort of started the basics and looked at some prime lens kits. So this is, these are the wide lenses, these, this is the sort of long end and some vintage primes. And, you know, This gives you a bit of a different look than those. So I'm looking at Cook S4s for the sort of regular standard look and then some, some vintage uh, Boltars I think I showed him um and then I showed him some of the zooms the Onno Optimos. he said oh that's what I want <laughs> but as soon as he saw the zoom lens um, which I guess is a connection with him with a you know with a small handy cam or whatever the kind of cameras that he he'd, he'd sort of worked with and also his work in television probably was with cameras with zoom lenses so for him that was a little bit easier for him to get his head around so it ended up that we just had the, ended up between the two cameras we had on Geno Optimo zooms, um, the lightweight compact zooms and then the, the big one, the 12 to one. And um, that ended up working well. It's the first movie I've shot um, entirely on zoom lenses. And um, uh, I found it to be totally fine and it was, it was good. I find that those, the Optimos in particular have a, still have a bit pretty cinematic look and feel. Um, they're not too clinical or digital. Uh, they work well with the Alexa, and um, uh, I found we got pretty nice results. And and they're fast. You know, it's fast to work with zoom lenses, you know. As long as you don't you take out of your mind it, too much of it having a too much of a a TV kind of feel. You're still making a movie, so you treat it like um, um, you treat the lenses like it's cinema. This just so happens to be a zoom.
1: Well, it's interesting cuz uh I, I actually when I saw the film I wasn't sure if you had shot it digitally or on celluloid. It reminded me so much again of Dean Cundy's work with John Carpenter, which was mm. obviously captured on film. Yeah. And I'm wondering uh you know if if you could elaborate a little bit more on you know how you got such a I get for lack of a less cliched word, cinematic look, um, you know, was it just those lenses or were there other things, were there things, anything you did with the way you treated the lenses or filtration or anything to, to sort yeah, of well take I, the edge off the digital a little bit?
0: I did. I used um, glimmer glass filters, Tiffin Glimmerglass, um, a number half and a number quarter um, the whole time, uh, depending on uh, usually the half. And that was uh, that. Just takes the digital edge off. And I often, I think most of the films that I've shot for cinema release, uh, spherically, I've always had a, some sort of diffusion uh, that's been shot digitally. Uh, less, not so much with anamorphic, you don't need it. But for for spherical, I always have, and I think it helps. Give it just take that this that slight bit of electronic image away. This diffuses that a tiny, tiny bit. Um, and I guess other than that, it's it's using lenses like the Optimos that aren't too clinical and super ultra razor sharp. They're just they're, you know they're sharp and they're good qua They you know they're super superb quality, but they're not. It's not like shooting on um, Master Primes, right? Um, and also shoot them, you know, shoot them between two eight and four. Never really stop down too much uh, with them, and and then the rest is kind of. the way the Alexa Mini sort of creates the image and the way that we we color time it we didn't um what was interesting because we wanted that slightly softer natural feel in the DI um we didn't crank in the contrast too hard we just left let it sit let the shadows and the blacks just sit up a little bit so they're not it's not it's not that which is off sometimes often the the norm with horror, in particular, a really contrast image and the blacks are black as black can be, and it's incredibly uh, contrasty. And if you shoot that on digital, sometimes it, it maybe it does starting to look a little bit more digital in quality, less like filmic. Uh, so we didn't do that. I think leaving that, leaving a little bit of softness in the contrast helps that sense that it's that it's a filmic image mm-hmm. and um, almost slightly retro in a way. And then, of course, there's people doing that on films all the time nowadays because everyone's searching for that, that kind of holy grail that doesn't look like digital anymore and looks yeah. like kind of something else where well, you've got that on one hand and then you've got the push on the other hand from manufacturers and others saying 4K, 8K, sharper, more resolution, more colour fidelity, high, high dynamic range, HDR, and all the rest of that, which is pushing it away from, I think a filmic image and more into a more digital image however that digital image may be incredible quality but it, it's almost enhancing the digital quality of it
1: right well as we sit here the movie is uh, you know it's still continuing to do very well it's gotten the mm-hmm. best reviews I've read for a horror movie ever yeah basically and <laughs> yeah pretty much um yeah. <laughs> I'm, you know I'm wondering if it's kind of uh what your response has been to The audience and critical response. I mean, did you have any any clue? Because I know again with these Bloomhouse movies, some of them get great releases and become very successful. Some of them just go straight to Netflix and uh, you know with no fanfare, and you never hear from them. Some sit in a closet somewhere and never come
0: out. Yeah, they never. Yeah, never (laughs) see the light of day. Some of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know, what were your expectations for this, and were they exceeded by all of this?
0: Oh, I think no one thought it was going to be quite so successful. I think it's a little bit of a movie that it's conceptually, it's in the zeitgeist of the times, you know? It What it's, yes, it's a horror movie, but it's actually also um, very much what Jordan says, a social thriller and it's a discussion about race in America um, put into the context of this story of this, this young man going to see his white girlfriend's parents. So it's, I think, it's just a, a movie that has seemed to s- sort of hit the nail on the head at the right moment at the right time when a lot of people are thinking about those things. And the movie is opening that up for discussion. And I think that was always Jordan's intent, even when he, f- he first came up with the idea when, of course, Barack Obama was president. And now we've got a different president, but that idea is perhaps even more relevant than it was. So... Um, I think it's just good, it, partly it's a good movie, it was a good script to start with, um, I think we've managed to execute Jordan's vision um, as, as well as we could, and, um, but really it's also amazing timing, yeah. and, uh, and the audiences are there, they want to see this.
1: Yeah, well, it's a great movie and I really appreciate you coming in to talk with me about it. It's a pleasure. This has been Jim Hemphill and Toby Oliver talking about Get Out for the American Cinematographer podcast.
0: This has been the American Cinematographer podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art
1: and craft of cinematography.